Welcome back to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing, man? Great. It's great to be back. Yeah, uh, truly it is. And I ain't got a great reason for being back other than it feels like a good time to be back. The rest the rest was really great and frankly may need more when this semester gets started for me again, working on my thesis and other projects, but I can just say that now, all I can say is that now feels like a good time to drop an episode. And just so you, the listeners, we are so glad that you're still fans. I mean, thanks for, for, for sticking, uh, sticking out with us and listening to us again. And there may be, depending on our schedules, there might be a solo episode, depending on our, uh, how that works out. But we'll try to do some, we'll try to, we'll try to uh, cover you. So, so stay with yeah. us. The other thing for, is, there are two yeah, reasons for why. Now, keep these expectations low, is what Derek is uh, trying to say. Yeah, keep, keep the expectations <laughs> low. Yeah. The other thing is, uh, there are two reasons why I wanted to come back. One is because I just missed talking with you. Like, I, it was so um, therapeutic to just be able to talk to you about, about the Bible. That's like my right. second most Im- favorite thing to talk about other than hot guys. So uh, talking <laughs> with a hot guy about the Bible equals yay, fun. And the second, <laughs> the second reason why I wanted to come back is I definitely wanted Beyond the Block to last longer than the Confederacy. Like if the Confederacy can make it four years, I, I want people to say, well, the Confederacy didn't even last as long as Beyond the Block. So why are you uh, <laughs> still hanging on to that? But anyway, so we got <laughs> we to gotta outlive yeah. the Confederacy. Outlive the Confederacy. That's a that's a good little goal. <laughs> but yeah, uh, we're in the New Testament this year, and uh, the first lesson for this year is going to be Matthew 1 and Luke 1. Uh, Derek, did you want to say any prefatory words about the either transition into the New Testament or about uh, what we're going to be reading today? Or do you want to yeah. just talk about that stuff? So okay, go ahead. I have three opening themes for the entire year. And uh, this year, for me, it's a focus on the family. I I realize that there's a homophobic organization already named that. But I really want to focus on what the (laughs) the New Testament teaches about family. Because most people don't realize this, but the New Testament consists of the adoption papers for a new, radically organized, multi-ethnic family. There's very little in the New Testament that centers marriage and kids as the point of the gospel. That is, obviously, we live in this world, so it's going to talk about that to some extent, but mm-hmm. marriage and kids is not the point of the gospel. It is not the point of the majority of what Jesus taught, um, what he did, uh, the way the Christian communities in the New Testament were organized. And so we need to keep that in mind. I'm going to talk about family throughout this year. And here's another thing is when the Savior does talk about biological family, he subverts it or radically recontextualizes it. And mm. we'll get into this in the Gospels when when he, when he, Jesus talks about hating your family and leaving your family and uh, dismissing your family and, and all those other things. And, and the way he mm-hmm. even treated his own biological family. We're going we're gonna to see how all this stuff gets radically decentered. Mm. And of course, in the New Testament, Jesus does not have... At least as the way it's narrated, as it's recorded, Jesus does not have a spouse or kids of his own uh, biologically. So we're going we're gonna to name that. Right. Two, another theme is we've done this all along about comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. So that's going to be here. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and then three, the New Testament also contains the records of communities that are choosing option three. So if you haven't looked at Rabbi B'nai Lappi's uh, crash theory talk in a while, go check that out on YouTube. She talks about how the Talmud is an option three retelling of the biblical Israelite uh, religious tradition. And in many ways, the New Testament is itself the product of option three thinking because it does go in a different direction than than a reading of the Hebrew Bible would would lead you to think, right? There's times mm-hmm. where, oh, this author is quoting this source very differently than what it reads in its own context. They're definitely playing with the tradition. They're expanding on it. It's a creative retelling of the received Hebrew Bible tradition. So we'll get into that uh, throughout the year. Another thing mm-hmm. I wanted to say is some advice and I could have, you know, I could have hours and hours of advice, but probably two things that are important right now is one, the most important thing for any uh, Latter-day Saint reader of the New Testament is to read in a modern translation. Um, especially for those of us who are English speakers in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have this received tradition of the King James Version, but that can be either misleading or confusing or um lead to uh, uh, misconceptions. And also the textual basis of the King James Version is is not the same as what modern critical editions of the New Testament are are based on. Um, so there's just ways that if you really want to understand, the f- most important thing is to read in at least one modern translation. And to recommend some, there's the new revised standard version, updated edition. There's now a new updated edition. This is the most scholarly, well, I wouldn't say most scholarly, but this is the um, mainline Christian traditions uh, academic approach Mm. to the the text. Uh, You're going to have like the English standard version, which is a much more doctrinally committed evangelical type version. Uh, which is which you could read, but that's not one of the ones that I'm recommending. I'm recommending the New Revised Standard Version. There's also Thomas Wayman's uh, translation for Latter Day Saints. There's the new uh, the New English Translation Bible, which also has an evangelical bias, but they footnote all of their translation choices, at least for the New Testament. For the Hebrew Bible, they they're a little bit uneven in their editing, but for the Greek New Testament, they really document, and every time I disagree with one of their choices, they have a footnote explaining what the situation is, and like my preferred rendering would is is in a footnote somewhere. Anyway, so that's uh, that's one thing. Also, for children or for speakers of other languages who are learning English, the New International Readers Version is really good. It is in a more simplified English. It breaks down the clauses into shorter sentences. It's a much more comprehensible. Uh, version. And even for me, it's helpful for sometimes like, oh, I look at that and like, oh, that's what it's been saying my entire life. I just never realized it. Right. Because we we've sort of adapted to a particular wording and we might not even know what that wording means. But anyway, another thing is uh, to look at a synopsis. A synopsis uh, of the four gospels is a book that has in parallel columns the uh, matching texts, which are not in the same place in every gospel. So you kind of chop mm-hmm. it up and you look at the synopsis and it shows you in parallel columns the exact wording between the four gospels. And you're able to see, well, what is what is the same? What is different? What are the editorial preferences or emphases of each individual 
evangelist and, and you get to see like what they're actually doing and you get to see the human fingerprints all over the scriptures which could be another theme for the year as well but anyway so th- that's kind of my advice if you're going through the gospels especially the way our come follow me curriculum does it it's almost done as a synopsis because we don't go through you know one gospel then the other then the then the third then the fourth we kind of do it side by side for the first mm-hmm. half of the uh, year Mm. So check out a synopsis. So that's all I had for intro. What did, did you have any intro-y type things? Yeah, bro, just one. Uh, now that we're in the New Testament, this seems like a good time to remember the quote-unquote big story of the Bible. Uh, the Old Testament comprised of three chapters, the the Genesis, the Exodus, and then the Exile. The entirety of the New Testament is the final chapter of the big story, and the final chapter is New Genesis, New Exodus, and New Kingdom, which means we're going to see several themes repeated in the New Testament. And even in this week's texts, we're going to see those echoes, echoes that make plain that we have a retelling of a story going on, maybe even for the purpose of reinforcement or replacement. I'll point a few of those out today uh, that happen in these chapters, though. So uh, that's all I got for by way of introduction. Yeah, and I had two two things to follow up with that. One is uh, this biblical category of exile is still ongoing. Even though there are Jews mm-hmm. living in Galilee and in Judea at this time, there's evidence, according to Tom Wright, that they still saw themselves as in exile. Because we We're going to we see have, that in the first chapter of mm-hmm. Luke, by the way. We have uh, Octavian, also known as Caesar Augustus, ruling the Roman mm-hmm. Empire. Um and we've got King Herod, who is not a descendant of David, by the way, uh, on the throne of Judea. And so here we've got all of these things, like what's going on with these prophecies? Like, hey, God, where are you? You promised us a Messiah, promised us a deliverer. And those a- expectations are really bubbling up at this time. And so you've got this antip- anticipation of a Savior, anticipation of a Messiah. Uh, but we will see that the New Testament does an option three retelling. Right, it's not going to be the Messiah that a plain, straightforward reading of the Hebrew Bible might lead some readers to think it would be. Mm-hmm. So there's that. The second thing I wanted to say is uh, something to watch out for, both in Matthew one and in Luke one, and maybe for the entire New Testament. But in both of these, so much of the narrative is done outside of or alongside of institutions rather than through institutional channels. Here you have Hmm. Mary and Zechariah and Joseph each receiving personal revelation. It didn't come through the calling of a a prophet, right? It didn't come through uh, the priesthood leader channel. It came through, now yes, Zechariah was in the temple, but it didn't come through the, uh, the high priest, it didn't come mm-hmm. through the institutional channels. It came alongside of or next to the institutional channels. So even when these institutions are mentioned, like the temple in Luke, revolution flows parallel to that institutional structure rather than through it. And we see this, of course, with Joseph Smith as well, right? That was mm-hmm. completely outside of any institution. And that's how that's how God works when God needs to. So keep that in mind as we see uh, what happens in Matthew 1 and Luke 1. Wonderful observation. Thank you for bringing that up, Derek. Uh, shall we start with uh, Matthew 1 and uh, talk about this uh, genealogy real quick? Sure, just... yeah. I'm so excited about this genealogy. Excellent, excellent. So we're going to go ahead into Matthew chapter 1. 
Uh, personally, I wanted to talk about two things in Matthew, in uh, sorry, Jesus's gene- genealogy, and I know you wanted to talk about this as well. So feel mm-hmm. free to interrupt at any point to add some additional commentary. We both wanted to focus on this, but uh, I wanted to focus on two things, and one in particular is that Jesus's um, uh, his upline, so to speak, is full of uh, imperfect individuals. Uh, we see Abraham, the man who enslaved Hagar, and questionably by both and, you know, acted questionably by both her and Sarah. We got Judah, one of the brothers of Joseph who sold him into Egypt and later had an illicit encounter with Tamar, a Canaanite woman disguised as a prostitute who is also in Jesus's up, up line. Uh, we see my namesake, Jacob, the trickster and the deceiver, uh, David, the one who slayed Goliath, but also committed murder and, you know, the supposed sin next to murder, adultery. Uh, we see Solomon, the imperialist and the polygamist. We see Manasseh, one of uh, Judah's most wicked kings. And uh, since I mentioned Tamar, it's worth mentioning that the women in uh, Jesus's uh, genealogy that are named are not often mentioned in genealogies at all. And the women in Jesus's line could be called uh, particularly, could be called questionable. Uh, they're, they're, they're all, uh, there's, there's a scandal surrounding all of them, actually. Uh, for example, we already talked about Tamar, who disguised herself as a sex worker. Rahab is also in Jesus' Jesus's line, and she was an actual sex worker. Mm-hmm. Ruth mm-hmm. was a Moabite, which means two things, that she's the product of an incestuous rape and from a non-Israelite people that worshipped false gods. And of course, we have Bathsheba, uh, who's a uh, you know, an argument can be made that because of the power dynamic in play, and we discussed this last year, that she too was taken advantage of. But uh, anyway, all of this is to say that regardless of uh, Jesus's heritage and in spite of difficult circumstances and people involved, God was still able to bring uh, the Christ into the world. I- I'm certain we had that conversation as well, uh, in part during the during the Hebrew Bible year, during our discussions of all the uh, folks in Christ genealogy, but one of the lessons we can we can frequently get is that if God can bring the Christ in the world through all of that, like if God can use all those folks to to bring Christ into the world, then surely He can use us as well. There's something hopeful. There's something encouraging about uh, seeing the circumstances, seeing the people that Christ came through, and knowing that it was still able to happen. So this should give us an incredible amount of hope. Uh, based on what we see in Christ's genealogy. There's also another thing worth noting regarding the women here is that four of the five women in uh, Jesus's genealogy, Tamar, Rahab, uh, Bathsheba, and Ruth, they're all of Hamitic descent, all of them. And I'm not using this to say that Jesus was black as I want to respect the uh, distinct Jewish uh, heritage of Jesus, but I do want to highlight that Jesus has black blood and Gentile blood in him, which is pretty significant. Mixed ancestry Jesus bears witness to the ridiculousness of this idea of uh, of pure blood anti-miscegenation and other white supremacist rhetoric. It smashes the myth of black inferiority and 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 of white supremacy, white superiority. If you if you find a perfect and sinless being in Christ, and that black people and all other people can find a place of racial, cultural, and historical identity in Him that he can therefore relate to, then you can't suppose there is a superior or inferior race, culture, or history. Mormons should already know that anyway, as we have 2 Nephi 26 affirming 
affirming equality, as well as Alma 7, affirming the condescension of Christ below all things that he can succor us. But I, uh, I know you want to come back to this, Derek, namely this uh, intention behind the inclusion of the women in the genealogy. So uh, is this a good time for a handoff? Yeah, I mean, we could spend, and we probably did spend an hour on each of the women in Jesus' yeah. genealogy. So, <laughs> like, th- that is worth going over again. I'm not going to go over that again. But like you said, there's something profoundly interesting about Matthew's uh, choice to include them. Because yeah. Matthew didn't have to include them. No. Right? It's uh, typically not included, like when you have genealogy. Exactly. Women are rarely so, included. This is definitely intentional. Choice implies meaning. And when someone yeah. intentionally adds... Um, these four women, and then if you add Mary, the fifth woman, uh, there's something going on there. And so we need to see how this uh, how this looks at um, all of the, the intersectional identities. Uh, women, uh, Gentiles, um, sex workers, uh, people who are, you know, outside the covenant. There's mm-hmm. just so many ways, or had, or had some scandalous uh, sexual impropriety going even ruth you can see you can see as that is being a uh, an inappropriate relationship right so there's many ways that we can see uh this is what matthew's doing is is prepping us for mary because mm-hmm. uh we're about to get this real big surprise that the messiah would be born of a virgin right and so by appealing to all these women and these other sort of stories about how God is working outside the the lines. Now, Matthew is setting up uh, with this big drum roll of all of these names, including the women, for the virgin birth. Now, no one was more surprised about the virgin birth than Joseph, because everyone else, if they saw a pregnant Mary, would they, well, that's that's Joseph's kid. But Joseph knew it wasn't his kid, and we're going to get some drama there. Now, there's something really interesting about this genealogy, because part of what Matthew's trying to do is, is show that Jesus is descended from the royal house of David, right? This is the mm-hmm. promised Davidic Messiah. This is like, hello, this is what we're waiting for. Now, there's a big problem with this, because if you look at Matthew's genealogy, and if you look at Luke's genealogy, which we'll get to in Luke chapter 3, they're both the genealogy of Joseph, right? They're not the genealogy of Mary. They are the genealogy of Joseph, who was not in any way Jesus's biological father. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've got this big problem because Jesus was not even literally descended from David. Now, some people say, well, maybe Luke's genealogy might have been uh, Mary's genealogy, but that's not what Luke says, and that m- probably would not have counted for royal descent. Um, and it, it certainly we've got a big problem that in uh, in the Hebrew Bible, this this adoptive thing does not count, right? You cannot just adopt yourself into uh, being a descendant of David. That is like literally what the prophecy is calling for is a, a biological descendant of David, which Jesus was not, hmm. at least according to his uh, earthly uh, adopted father. So here we've got this big option three retelling, like, whoops, we're claiming this dude as the Messiah, Jesus, and he's not even literally a descendant of David. He's adopted. So let me tell you, adoption counts. Like if adoption counts for the Messiah to be born of David, then adoption counts for everyone, right? Mm. Chosen family is real family. All of you straight supremacists out there who think, oh, the gays can't have kids, or they can't have whatever. Okay, just take Matthew chapter one and shove it in your mouth because adoption is real family, Right? 
Whatever is whatever we bind together is bound in heaven. Whatever we seal together is sealed in heaven. Adoption as it is as real as it gets. Mm. So don't tell me that gays can't have kids because some right some same gender couples still do have biolog- biological children. But even if that weren't the case, chosen family is real family. So let me just just stop there. And and here's the other thing about this is that the virgin birth, which Matthew and Luke are both clear about, the virgin birth completely decenters heterosexual sex as the source of everything good. Right? All these straight people love to claim that ooh, heterosexual sex is is the is the the everything. It's like the the, the goal of everything. It's the the center of everything. It's the point of everything. It's the whatever. I'm like this. That's a really weird obsession. Okay. The Messiah was not born of heterosexual sex, so you don't get to claim it as the source of everything good. Straight sex isn't the only means to have children. Mm -hmm. Adoption counts, as we've said. And not only was Jesus not born of heterosexual sex, but Adam and Eve were not born of heterosexual sex either. So the people who say, oh, gay relationships aren't valid because they can't have biological children, like there's about 10 different things wrong with that. And here's the other reason. Adoption counts even within our own institution. Like if you have a straight couple who adopts a child that is not their own, they are Latter-day Saint family, they absolutely are able to go to the temple and be sealed to their adopted child. That should blow apart any of this biological supremacist mess, Mm -hmm. right? If if we can seal the adopted children of straight folks, we absolutely should seal the adopted uh, children of of gay couples or even single people. I I see no reason that a single parent who adopts a child or has a child um, as a single mother, which in many ways Mary was, right? Um, She was betrothed at the time, so she wasn't exactly single. But here's my point is, I think single people should be able to be sealed to their children, adopted or or biological. And I would just want to say there's there's a lot. If you look at um, verse 18, it says, uh, this is Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. It says that she was found to be pregnant. Uh, and there's there's a lot of weight to that. She was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. There's a whole narrative behind that. There's a lot of drama. There's a lot of emotion packed into that one Greek word, this, this, this passive voice word. She was found. Who did the finding? Was it Joseph? Was it women in the community? What was that story like? We don't get that conversation. Maybe if, if we had more women authors of the text, we would have. Like, what was that like when she was found pregnant in a very vulnerable spot, right? And Joseph didn't know. Joseph, Joseph found and didn't know. She was found to be pregnant. There's a big, there's a story that we're not getting there, um, but mm-hmm. I just want to name that. And then in the next verse, verse 19, we get something about the character and role of Joseph. Because, and I'm reading from the, the Net Bible here. Because Joseph, her husband-to-be, was a righteous man, and because he did not want to disgrace her, he intended to divorce her privately. This is something very interesting because according to his rights under the Torah— he could have um, publicly accused her of adultery, and she could have been stoned. Like, that is what the law, right? Mm-hmm. All this business about we've got some legal experts in the church who say, oh, you have to balance the law and the, and the you know, oh, just shove it ba- back into Matthew 1 where it doesn't <laughs> belong. Because 
this is what Joseph, because he was righteous, he decided to to take the loving, the, the more gracious route and say, look, according to justice, quote, um, I could have her uh, stoned. But he decided to divorce her privately. Now, here's the other thing. A man at this time could divorce a woman without giving a reason publicly. Mm-hmm. He could just write the get and give his wife the get, and they would be divorced. He did not have to to, to accuse her of adultery in order to um, divorce her. He could have just done it under in the Torah law. But so he decided to do it in a way that preserves life and preserves dignity. And I think uh, Joseph's... Uh, adopted son jesus did the same thing in john chapter 8 with the woman caught in adult and here she was actually caught in in adultery and he and and jesus did the same thing when choosing between the law and love i'm on the side of love right because the point of the law is to preserve a loving um society where people treat each other well right that's the point of the law the law isn't an end in, in itself the point is love. I love that uh, uh, one of our central uh, metaphors for God is, and it might not even be a metaphor, is that God is love according to First John 4. God is love. It doesn't say God is obedience or God is law or God is, is extortion and threat. God is love. Anything that's not pointing towards love um, is not pointing towards God. And here, people say, well, the loving thing is to make sure that everyone does the right thing. Well, on one level, that's true, right? We want people to be safe. We want people. But on the other hand, we have to look at God. We have to look at Christ to know what love is like. Jesus is love incarnate. That's the message we have at, at Christmas. So let's just keep this in mind as we uh, we look at the law. We look at the commandments. People are, oh, all about exact obedience. Jesus was about exact disobedience, right? And we got to see this here. Um, so Ju- Joseph wasn't on board with exact obedience, right? Mm-hmm. But anyway, so let me point out another... Do you have any thoughts on this? Not immediately, I don't think. Okay. So um, let me point out another thing is that Joseph is absolutely silent in all four Gospels. In the entire New Testament, we do not have a single word that is quote. We have a bunch of Mary's words, which we're going to get mm-hmm. a bunch of them in, in Luke too, but we have Mary's words throughout the Gospels. Um but Joseph is silent. None of his words are ever recorded. And I love how this, um, for me, subverts the patriarchy. It shows that the biblical model of marriage is for a husband to stand by silently while he completely <laughs> supports his wife's divine calling. Mm. Right? She was literally called by God through an angel to this calling. And he's going along with her calling. Right? He is supporting her. Um, he is, um, it's not about his, his, his calling is to be the husband and the foster father of, of, of the savior, right? He is supporting her calling and he doesn't even speak. And I think, I think that's pretty cool, right? Um, and I just love how what Joseph is doing is a model of divesting privilege Mm. because he could have, you exercised his rights, um, but he didn't. He said he 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 didn't. He's like, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do this because he was a righteous man. He didn't do that. He did not um, shame Mary. He did not have her stoned. And I wish I could see our church leaders divesting privilege. And we don't see that. Speaking of divesting privilege, did you hear that Pope Benedict the Sixteenth has died? Yeah, just got the news this morning. 
Yeah. And one of the best things that he ever he did well, there's a, he did a lot of stuff I didn't agree with. But one of the things that he did that I agreed with is that he resigned. He retired. Mm-hmm. He realized that he was not um, going to be able to lead the church in a time where the church needed different leadership and diff- needed a transition, needed a, a fresher face, needed to get away from um, all the stuff that Pope Benedict was entangled with for the past 40 years in the church, right? All that was on him and was like, he retired. And uh, that was was amazing. That never for really over, happened in history, did it? Like for a pope to just resign. Did that yeah, ever happen it had before? Been, yes, it had happened, but it had been 600 years. Oh, 600 man. years. Um, <laughs> Can't imagine. And I, I'm like, wow, he did it. He did it. He, deci- he decided to give up power. He decided to give up power for the sake of what's best for the church. Now, I don't see our church leaders in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's many ways they could give up power. I'm not saying that they all should resign, but I definitely think that once you become of a, of a certain age— uh, you should be able to peacefully retire and spend time with your grandkids. Like you shouldn't. I think it's torture and abuse to to wheel these people up there when they are past the time where they've got the time and energy to do this, and the health to do this. And pro- like you know, for two years we had basically an absent prophet in President Nelson. Like we love President Nelson, but I don't think that Sorry, is President um, Nelson. Uh, Monson, President Monson. Yeah. President Monson, yeah, I mean, he's great. He talked about widows and he talked about, you know, Boy Scouts and stuff. But for two years, like, we had a vacuum of of solid leadership in the church. And that's not his fault. I'm not blaming him. I mean, we've got an ableism issue where we're trying to take um, people who who have who shouldn't be forced to do this. I mean, I'm not saying that people should be retired if they don't want to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the, our leaders absolutely should have the option of retiring. In Community of Christ, they have um, apostles and prophets, and they're able to retire when they um, when they need to retire. Uh, there's, there's, I have I see no biblical reason or any reason in the DNC why we shouldn't allow church leaders to retire. Hmm. Anyway, so I would love to see uh, a divestment of privilege among our leaders, and, and we really don't see that. What we see, at least from my perspective, is the accumulation of privilege. They want to. To claim as much power as they can, financial power, moral power, which which, which is a problem, um, like institutional power, um, decision making power, like decision making in the gospel is about shared leadership, about persuasion and long long suffering and and and, and bringing people along rather than um, enforcing it using threats. Anyway, so that's kind of what I wanted to to say. Yeah, you thought. Have you thought? Uh, do you have any thoughts on these things? Only that this certainly merits a longer conversation. This piece about uh, divestment of privilege and power, and we're going to get to some of it in our discussion of the Magnificat. But envisioning a church where the power is decentralized and more in the hands of the vulnerable, you know, those who have been hurt, silenced, and rendered invisible, rather than the brethren is certainly a worthwhile exercise so long as any sort of harm is being caused or exacerbated by the church. A big part of the work that we do is uh, paying attention to how people's well-being is enhanced or diminished 
by prevailing patterns of social power and vulnerability, and acknowledging that this church would look very different if we turned our attention to those people and centered their voices should both encourage us, because that will be a functionally more Christ-like church, and worry us, because what kind of Jesus-following movement or organization centers wealthy white old men with no real path for redress when those facing the greatest risk or min- are minorities? That, that's a conversation for another day. I would love to right. have that conversation. And There's I would just love so to, many like, conversations to have. And hopefully our listeners will, will have these conversations with their, with their ward members or their family members or their friends and, and keep these conversations going. There's one more thing I wanted to say about Matthew, so. and then let's move on to Luke because we could talk for hours about Luke. Okay. So in Matthew one twenty three, we have this prophecy quoted from Isaiah uh, that the virgin will conceive and bear a son, uh, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And what's interesting about that is apparently no one before Matthew ever took this as a prophecy of the Messiah. It's doing something its own in its own time, in Isaiah's time, right? It, it meant something completely different. I don't think anyone saw this as a prophecy of the Messiah until Matthew, so far as we have recorded. So this is an option three retelling. It's Definitely, I hate to say pulled out of context because that implies that the rules of the game are are one thing and they're being violated. But but Matthew's playing a different game. He's creatively retelling the uh, story of the Hebrew Bible in a way that points us towards Christ, and that's fair within the rules of the of the game that Matthew's playing. But what's interesting about this God with us is that the incarnation, the enfleshment of God. God's self is a divestment of privilege. God has um, omnipotence and omniscience and eternal life and all these things. And by taking on mortality, gives up those things, mm. takes on a mortal body and dies. The author of life can die. The Someone who's all-powerful can now be limited and now be killed, right? There's just so many ways that the incarnation itself is a divestment of privilege. And according to Paul in Philippians 2, is the model that we as Christians should follow. We should be in a race to give up our privilege for the sake of those who are weak, for mm. the sake of the community, right? And divestment of privilege is an option three move. Retention of privilege is is an option one move, that is, wanting to retain all of your goodies and retain your structural and institutional power. And divestment of privilege is, allows, is what allows real family to happen. And this is where we get God with us. This is the Christmas time. And I wish that we, as Latter-day Saints, did more with Christmas. It is the second most important feast in the Christian year. It is a feast. We should come together as a community and celebrate. Um, it's not about being at home with, you, you know, your to open presents, right? That is not the meaning of Christmas. I mean, I like presents. I like, that's fine. But that is not the centerpiece. The centerpiece is, um, it's kind of like a wedding. Like, you wouldn't want to say, well, I'm going to skip the wedding so I can be home with my kids. No, bring your kids to the wedding. Celebrate. This is a communal. This is life. This is beauty. This is like what we do. Uh, I would love for us to do more um, and have uh, services on Christmas um, even if It'd it doesn't cool to have a Christmas liturgy. Yeah, we could, we could have, we totally could have a Christmas liturgy. There's nothing that, that prevents that other than, um, it seems like in, in our church, we have a, we don't, we don't prize excellence enough. Excellence in preaching, excellence in scholarship, excellence in, um, 
Well, they do prioritize excellence in making money, like that. That they do, <laughs> but we don't have excellence in liturgy as a uh, as a value, right? It's not a priority, um, no. So we just and uh, it's hard to be excellent in this church. Um, yeah, we have that carpeting on the walls. Like that's not excellence. I'm just, I'm just sorry. But anyway, <laughs> let's go on to Luke. Luke, uh, right. do you have anything to say about Luke? Of course, I have things to say about Luke. I love Luke. Um, what I wanted to say about Luke, uh, particularly while we were on the conversation of lineage, um, before we dive fully into the book of Luke, I wanted to point out that Luke is identified in Colossians as a non-Jew, meaning he's a Gentile. Now we don't know that for sure. We don't even know for sure if Luke was the author of the book of Luke. There's nothing in the book of Luke to indicate that except for, you know, some, you know, inferences based on our readings of other texts and, you know, all this other stuff. So like, but I did want to highlight that as a very strong possibility that uh, Luke is identified as a Gentile. And it can't be understated the significance of having one of the four gospels of the Savior of Jewish birth written by a Gentile. Uh, It also explains the book's emphasis, or greater emphasis rather, on Gentiles and also the greater focus on the outsiders. I mean, if you look at just the first six books of Luke, you're going to see uh, several uh, focuses on outsiders, several focuses on Gentiles, several focuses on like the people who are uh, underprivileged or underrepresented. When we get to the Sermon on the Plain in Luke, I think that's Luke chapter six, um, we see that there are only four Beatitudes that are really focused on, and every single one of them is focused on people Mm -hmm. that are not represented well in society or that are underserved in society. Um, I could go through just these first six chapters of Luke and show how that's done, but I think that's worth highlighting because of who Luke is presumably and what he ch- where he chooses to spend his time. I don't think it's a coincidence that the book of Luke, in the book of Luke, there are several narratives that highlight the contributions or the importance of the other uh, or the or, or the lost. Like in the in Luke 15, we got the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, the prodigal son, and we also get the Sermon on the Plain, which is all in the book of Luke. Uh, we see. Uh, the use of women to announce the news of the Savior's rising and the commissioning of Mary Magdalene, a woman who had devils cast out of her as the apostle to the apostles to announce both the rising and the ascension Mm -hmm. of Christ. All are reminders of the character of God to use the least of these, to use the left out, the othered, to contribute in substantial ways to the fulfilling of God's promises. Uh, His place, Luke's place, I mean, in canon, is a testimony to... God's value of all people, of all cultures, ethnicities, Luke the Gentile telling the story of God's plan for the reconciliation of all things in Jesus. It's both deeply meaningful and what inspired early generations of uh, abolitionists and evangelists in the in the black church. Uh, also, Luke chapter one, it's not even about Jesus. Like it's about Zechariah and Elizabeth. It's about Elizabeth and Mary. It's about an old couple. And I'm meaning uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who spent their time, and this is going back to your point about the exile still going on, Zechariah and Elizabeth spent their time directly involved 
in making theological sense of the oppression Israel was experiencing under Rome. They're an old couple who interacted every day with people whose, whose, whose lives, as well as the lives of their grandparents, were shaped by foreign rule and, and the anger and the frustration that probably accompanied it. It's about an old couple whose political and personal lives often beg the same questions the children of Israel asked during their captivity and then later in their exile. And the same questions my people have asked in this country for generations. You asked one of them already, Derek. Where is God? You know, mm-hmm. why hasn't he saved us? Mm-hmm. Doesn't he see our suffering? Mm-hmm. Uh, Luke 1 is also where we see women prophesying. Specifically, we see the Magnificat that we'll discuss a little bit later, also known as Mary's Song. And if you listen to the show for any length of time, you know, Derek, you've you've talked about the Magnificat at least a couple of times uh, when we weren't discussing Luke. It's basically Mary's reaction to God choosing her to bring his son into the world. And uh, it is one of the most radical and revolutionary texts in the entirety of the New Testament. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. just listen to uh, this verse. This is 51. He hath, I'm reading out of the uh, King James for the time being. You know what? Let me read. Let me let me read it out of my NRSV. Hold hold, hold up just a second. Okay, Brother Derek, I'm 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 going to read it from 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 the updated thing because you know you just told us we should probably do that instead. But uh, this is fifty one. Um, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Like that's radical, my guy. That is radical. And we got to remember those words once we finally get to the Beatitudes, uh, you know, later in Matthew and later in Luke. And let's also remember that uh, Mary herself is a believer and living in the same shadow of oppression that Elizabeth and Zechariah are. And she is repeating that Mm -hmm. which is the hope of so many people on the margins, that God will put down the mighty and exalt those of low degree and fill the hungry. Mary is declaring that God reveals himself in turning his attention to those that the world deems unworthy and puts them in a place of honor and dignity. We're going to see this throughout the Lord's ministry and a few more times in Paul's teachings of Jesus. But so much of the Lord's ministry is visiting those of low degree and exalting them, highlighting them while pulling down the rich and the mighty. In fact, the resurrection, I've said it before on this show, is like even though the powers that be succeeded in killing Jesus, they didn't succeed for long. Jesus did resurrect, in effect, letting them know like Y'all can't keep me down. The worst, the baddest, and the most brutal cannot keep me down. That is what Jesus said with the resurrection. He pulled down the mighty and exalted the lowly. So, like, this is what we're dealing with just in the uh, first book of Luke is the echoes of all this and an idea of what is to come uh, when it comes to what we can expect from Jesus' ministry. And as you said, Jesus, a decentering of uh, of the hetero- heteropatriarchal society and the norms that we have. Um, and you've, al- you've also pointed out that Luke's story, or was it Matthew's story, starts during the reign of Herod with Zechariah, who's a priest, and his wife, Elizabeth, descendants of Aaron. Or I think, I don't know which one is a descendant of Aaron. I think it's Elizabeth. But anyway, uh, by the time we get to this, we already see this is not a traditional family that we're dealing with. Uh, women enter the scene in 126, 
Uh, Two unborn children, John the Baptist and Jesus, is packed with Hebrew Bible allusions from the book of Genesis specifically. Uh, First Samuel is what I'm thinking of. We got the five people family of Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, and Isaac. And then we got this family in uh, the house of Zechariah. But while the two women are speaking with their, you know, with their voices, uh, Mary and Elizabeth, Zechariah doesn't actually like Zechariah literally has no say until the end of this story. Uh, while he was on duty in the temple, an angel makes him mute. And uh, because he doubted that he and his wife could really have a child, you know, there's a lack mm-hmm. of faith there, which we can immediately contrast with Mary's faith when she receives an enunciation of her own of the same, uh, of the same power, the same degree. We think we meet the unknown and unmarried girl, Mary, without any, and I'm using the word girl deliberately. She is not yet a woman. Mm-hmm. She's only about, what, 16 at the time? She's still a teenager, I think. And she doesn't have any reputable priestly pedigree or standing like Zechariah does or like Elizabeth and is praised by Elizabeth as the one who believed, who has the faith that matters mm-hmm. when you look at uh, 145 mm-hmm. in Luke. Mary's absolute trust that God can bring forth life against all likelihood makes her similar to Abraham in Genesis. We see that parallel. And what will the titles and the rank of her son be? Son of God, Most High, King, uh, King on the throne of David, King over the house of Jacob, everlasting kingdom without end. This is Nathan's prophecy for King David in the mm-hmm. in Second uh, Samuel seven sixteen. So we see those echoes, and then when Mary visits, okay, we were talking about this drama earlier that is occurring during this whole scandal. Mary mm-hmm. visits the pregnant Elizabeth all by herself, which is very unusual and very dangerous. And, you know, joyfully embraced by her as pregnant too and blessed rather than cursed by an illegitimate pregnancy, an illegitimate pregnancy, which should have been the proper response to the situation at this time. But they don't give into that. Uh, also, their two unborn boys connect instead of fight, which is something that we see back in the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. John the Baptist jumps for joy when Mary arrives at Elizabeth's house. There's an echo from Genesis that comes immediately to my mind. The fight of the twin brothers Jacob and Esau in Rebekah's womb. There's the competitive relationship in Genesis between brothers all throughout. Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, uh, whoever was in, who was it? Perez and uh, freaking, what's his name? I don't even know. But like we see this multiple times in the Hebrew Bible narrative, this idea of competing uh, siblings or competing relatives in uh, on the male side. And then we see something happen between Mary and Elizabeth that did not happen between their sisters in the Hebrew Bible. Mary and Elizabeth, they embrace one another rather than competing with each other and denigrating each other, while Hagar and Sarah, they're the ones fighting. Uh, so we see that illusion. But at any rate... While Zechariah is silenced, Mary is inspired by Elizabeth's response to proclaim the good news in this house. She becomes the first prophetic witness, first messianic theologian, the first preacher in the whole gospel of Luke, which is mm-hmm. massive. It, that That is, and, uh, you know, then we get to, of course, what is at the core of her Magnificat, which we might as well just talk about now since we've already alluded to it and I'm already back on it. So do you have any comments yeah. on the Magnificat or anything else Else I've said? I think I've been talking for a minute. Yeah. Um, we don't have time to talk about this, but you should people should definitely contrast this with the Hannah's prayer in First Samuel 2. Uh, there's, because this there's same is, things. There's same elements yeah. in Hannah's prayer, aren't there? Yep, we've got a lot of of rejoicing of someone who's lowly because Hannah mm-hmm. um, could not conceive uh, and did not have a child, and then she was exalted. Um, mm-hmm. There's there's military language in this uh, in in both Hannah's song and in um, 
in Mary's song. And here's the thing about Mary's song is I I want I've been talking to, to a whole bunch of people. One of the first things when you talk about the experience of being gay in the church, there's one thing that immature theologians, amateur, amateur and immature, <laughs> amateur and immature good labels, amateur and immature theologians who haven't thought about this more than half an hour in their life think they can tell me something. They say, oh, Derek, the atonement is going to make all of this up to you in the next life. I mean, like, that is sick. That is not what the gospel is That is, is not is what about. I want to hear. Okay. It's not the next life thing. It's it's here and now. Yes. It's here and like, now. Like, if you look at, okay, if everything was going to be fixed in the next life, there is no reason for Herod to be quaking in, in his boots, right? Herod was afraid of this, this new king. Like, there's a reason Herod should be afraid of the new king, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there, like, if God is incarnate, it makes a difference in this world. I'm not saying this world is right. going to be perfect. It's not going to be, right? But mm-hmm. we can't just do what people call spiritual bypassing. That is, ignoring the actual problem and just bypassing it and then offloading it. This is what James chapter 2 is about. Faith without works is dead. You know, you mm-hmm. can't just have thoughts and prayers. You have to at least try to love your neighbors yourself in this world. Now, let's talk about this spiritual bypassing more in the context of the Magnificat. So the Magnificat, we've got... Um, feeding the hungry. She doesn't say, oh, well, they'll they'll get fed in the next life. They'll they'll starve to death in this life and they'll get fed yeah. the next life so we don't have to worry about it. No, she says God's point in this life is to destabilize all these hierarchies, to tear down thrones, to tear down all these things, to raise up the lowly, of which she considers herself to be one at the beginning mm-hmm. of, the, of the Magnificat. And like... This is just so radical. If I said these things, I would be called a socialist. You'd be called a socialist, a Marxist, a communist. Right. Like an anti Did you see the meme about this? I don't know. I, there's so Dude, many memes somebody about this. posted, quote, literally quoted word for word the Magnificat, and then somebody just quoted, okay, this was not Marx. This was not Lenin. This was not a communist or Marxist. This was Mary in the Bible. This was in the Bible. Right. And and another thing is to say that that. Mary's just responding to the Hebrew Bible tradition. She's appealing to mm-hmm. all these prophecies. She's appealing to all these promises, and she's appealing to all these precedents, right? Like, he has brought down the mighty from their low thrones and lifted up those of lowly position. He has filled mm-hmm. the hungry with good things and has mm-hmm. sent the rich away empty. This is mm-hmm. the gospel in this world. It's not going to be perfect in this world. We don't need to say that anymore. We get right. it. But we need to embody Christ in this world as in this a, life as a foothold to the next. We need the right. next life to have um, a foothold in this one to have uh, to, to to have the reign of God begin to break into to this world. Right when Jesus taught his okay, here's the thing: is people say, "Oh, but don't worry, like you'll you gays will have it good in the next life, whatever." And I mean, but here's the other thing: their version of the next life is not very good for gays either because. <laughs> If we, we don't have gay ceiling, if I can't be with someone I love, either I get extinct and turned into a straight person, which wouldn't be me. Like, I would not be me if you it would. I cannot be turned straight. What would happen is you would actually delete me and, and, and put a create a straight person out of nothing in my place. You cannot turn me gay uh, straight. Right. Um, I wouldn't be me in the next life or in this life. It wouldn't be me. 
So this idea of that, the celestial genocide, all the gays will be fixed and all the gays will get an opportunity to marry someone of the appropriate gender. This is, this is divine conversion therapy. It's not going to work, right? This is worse than the BYU electric shock therapy, which didn't work either. But this, because this is permanent, right? This, this, I, this next life that they're saying is going to be so good for the gays, it's not going to be good for the gays. Like, this is just really bad. Really bad. The other thing is, they didn't even pay attention to Jesus' teachings. In Matthew chapter 6, when he teaches how to pray, well, let's look at how Jesus taught people to pray. He said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on On earth. On earth as it is in heaven. He didn't say, oh, well, God's will will be done eventually. You don't have to. No, Jesus taught us to pray for deliverance in this world. I -hmm. want to be delivered from straight supremacy in this world. Right. I'm sure you want to be delivered from racism in this world. Probably. Our trans siblings. That'd be nice. Want, I, I'm trying. I'm doing, yeah. I'm trying to do my part. Like our trans siblings want to be delivered from transphobia in this world. Mm-hmm. Right? Women delivered from misogyny in this world, right? Obviously, it's not going to be perfect, but the idea that the gospel is about just delaying all this stuff, that is not how Jesus taught us to pray. Mm-hmm. Jesus taught us to pr- pray that it would be done on earth as it in, mm-hmm. is in heaven. As that it is God, in heaven. That God's kingdom would earth. come and reign here, here yeah. and now on earth right? as it is in heaven. So anyway, all this spiritual bypassing is a mess, and, and they need to listen to Beyond the Block, right? <laughs> yes sir and I have is. so much more I want to say about about Luke because we skipped towards the, the Magnificat which you could like talk for five hours about the Magnificat absolutely and we have already but let's <laughs> go say, back has it, it's already been an hour hasn't it <laughs> no but I mean cumulatively over the you know we've talked oh, yeah. about it here and there we've talked about it en- enough but I, I just can't under I think people should memorize the Magnificat. I have it memorized in English. Um, I've sung it numerous times. I have the Book of I just Common Prayer. Thi- yeah, I just sang it this month for the first I time. Have, yeah, I have the Book of Common Prayer translation memorized because I've sang it. Uh, I've sung it so many times um, in different settings. But anyway, I want to go back and talk a little bit about um, Luke. Uh, Luke's purpose in writing um, is in one one through four to build faith to. Uh, to to give people a solid foundation for the things that they um, that they need to know. I'll probably talk more about Luke later when we get more into Luke. But um, I want to name that Mary and Zechariah had different attitudes but similar words because both of them, when they were confronted by an angel, said, "How can this be? Or how is this going to happen? Or how do I know? This, mm-hmm. How do I know this is going to happen?" And on the surface. They looked the same, but clearly there's something different about their attitude. Mary right. had this um, trust and this uh, desire for more information, which proves that we, as Latter Day Saints, members of the church, we have the right to ask questions of right. our leadership. None if Mary questions. can ask questions of an angel, and if Joseph can ask questions to the Lord to find out, you know, to get the first vision, absolutely. James one verse five, let him ask. Let them ask. Let her ask. Let them all ask. And there's people who say, oh, you can't ask. You can't ask for more revelation on the gays. You can't ask. I'm like, but it says, let him ask. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so Mary asked. Now, I just want to name that um, Zechariah's uh, statement 
is ironically, um, I should also let people know that there's the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible made a few centuries before the time of the New Testament. And Luke especially um, is in dialogue with the Septuagint. Whenever Luke quotes um, the Hebrew Bible text, it's almost always from the Septuagint. So there's this dialogue here. And if you look at the Septuagint of Genesis 15, this is where the Lord promises Abram at the time, saying, I'm going to give you all these children. And then Abram believed the Lord and God and the Lord credited it as righteousness. And then the Lord in 15, Genesis 15, verse 7 says, I'm the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abraham said, verse 8, O sovereign Lord, by what can I know that I am to possess it? So, and in Greek, this is very, very similar to what Zechariah says. How am I to know this? Um, how am I to know this? And so what what for Abraham is an expression of faith, an expression for more information. For Zechariah, there must be something um, uh, something there. Now, in terms of ableism, we need to say, well, aff- afflicting uh, Zechariah with a disability is not this is not how the narrative really should go, right? In you know, in a way that I would write it, but um, but there's something different, and and so we've got to be patient with people, even if from the outside it looks like their questions come from doubt or lack of faith, it could come from a sincere trust and and desire for more information. Um, let me go back to uh something interesting about. Verse 26, Luke 1, 26, about the timing of the Feast of the Nativity of Our Lord, uh, which happens on December 25th, and the Feast of the Nativity of John the Baptist, which happens on June 24th, uh, six months before. or Yeah, six months before. Well, here's something interesting about that is that we actually have timestamps because uh, Mary conceives in the sixth months in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So I love how these two women, their their stories are united this way, and their two pregnancies are united um, this way and offset by six months. What's interesting about that in the Northern Hemisphere, I learned from one of my Catholic priest friends, is that because, so the Nativity of Our Lord, December 25th, happens around the December solstice. That is the uh, the winter solstice in the northern hemisphere, where now the light is increasing. Whereas the, mm-hmm. the the feast of the nativity of John the Baptist happens at the summer solstice, when the sunlight in is decreasing or begins to decrease in the northern hemisphere. And this ties into the John three text that uh, G- John the Baptist says he must decrease, and I must. Uh, oops, I said that wrong. Uh, G- John the Baptist says he must increase, and I must decrease. This is the absolute attitude that prophets should have okay i want to see nelson point to christ and get out of the way what we see too much is our culture wants to point to the prophets and and increase them like no like look at how many times they quote each other look at how many times they um flatter each other in conference look mm-hmm. at how many times they support they should be quoting the marginalized they should be ele- they don't need to elevate and flatter each other they need to elevate the voices of people like you and me, mm-hmm. right? People on the margins. That's what, what Jesus was all about. So let me just, just pause that for a second. I want to say yeah. something really interesting about Luke one thirty five. This is the Annunciation, Gabriel. By the way, 
Um, Mary appears to say yes, but that is Mm -hmm. the third thing she says. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let me just go back to the text of the Annunciation here. And so uh, the first thing the angel says is, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Mm-hmm. And then she was greatly troubled. That's her first reaction. Then the angel says, do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son. And then after that, she says, well, how th- will these things be since they have not um, known a man? And then the angel explains it, provides her f- for further information. And then it's the third response where she says, let it be according to your word. Um so the, that's the outline of how the Annunciation goes. She says yes as her third response. Now here's something interesting about this, is that in the explanation in verse 35, Luke 1.35, Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. What's interesting about that is, almost certainly, uh, when Gabriel spoke to Mary, it would have been either in Hebrew or in Aramaic. Right. It wouldn't have been in Greek. It would have been in one of these Semitic languages. And in both Mm -hmm. of those languages, the word for spirit is feminine in gender. And Mm. in both Hebrew and in Aramaic, the verbs are gendered to match the subject of the clause. Mm. So here she would have heard in Hebrew or in Aramaic, either one. By the way, the Syriac text, it's a translation of the Greek, but it is the Aramaic uh, of uh, of a little bit later time. So we have the Aramaic text here as well. And it's it's feminine. And the verb is feminine, right? So I love how Will Gaffney translates it. She says, the Holy Spirit, comma, she will come upon you. Instead of just saying the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the Holy Spirit, comma, she will come upon you. And I think that is very, very beautiful. That is a resonance that Mary would have taken and heard in 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 Aramaic or perhaps Hebrew. Um, and this comes from the Women's Lectionary for the Whole Church, Year W. And I want to get into this question of, was Mary's pregnancy consensual? And this is a very challenging mm-hmm. question. Um, we do have Mary's feelings on this, as recorded by Luke in the Magnificat. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some larger questions about how the Lord works and how the gospel works. Would the Lord use um, oppressive means— to deliver the world from oppression, right? Can the master's tools dismantle the master's house? <laughs> and and this this question needs to be asked because there is a power di- differential between humans and God. Did Mary completely feel free to say no? And I don't know that. Um, I don't know that. I, I would hope that the Lord is working on the side of agency versus on the side of shortcuts. If you look at the narrative arc of where Luke is going, I I I would it looks like um, Luke is narrating this as consensual, but obviously, but again, I don't want to shortcut a conversation about that. We do need to have a serious con um, conversation about power dynamics and abuse in the church. Um, so so that needs to to be named. You have any thoughts on any of those things? <laughs> None that we have time for, friend. But oh. thank you for the opportunity. Well, so sir, so there is that question. Um, but I, I hope that because the priest had power works by persuasion rather than by coercion. And now this is unfair because now I'm importing DNC 121 into interpreting Luke, <laughs> but which is not what Luke intended. But I think given the way Luke is outlining throughout Luke and Acts together, how God moves and how God works— 
I'm hoping that that Mary, this was truly um, Mary was was on board with this, and and she was was excited and happy to deliver this uh, revolutionary Messiah into the world. Now let's talk about how revolutionary that was. Let's go um, to this visitation. So this is the scene between Mary and Elizabeth, uh-huh. and Mary brings Christ literally. As a as as a baby in her womb, Mary brings Christ to her loved one. I think that's what we got to do. We've got to bring Christ to our loved ones. And here we have this significant, beautiful exchange between two women. Uh, we've talked about the Bechdel test, which comes out of the queer woman's experience. Uh, we've got this dialogue between between two women. I think there's there's a lot of beautiful things in here. Let's look at this. Blessed are you among women, verse 42. That is so profound because we've got some intertextual echoes. Um, blessed are you among women. There is only, I can only think of two other places where this language is ever used in the Bible. And the first is in Judges 5, verse 24. This is the story of Yael, or Jael, and Sisera where Yael takes a tent peg and stabs it through this enemy man's uh, temple, right? Did we talk about this? I can't remember if we talked about that. Gosh, I don't even know. Well, anyway, so so the enemy, this, this Israelite woman defeats an enemy of Israel um, through, her, through her cunning, through her uh, position as a woman, her ability to get into the tent. She ends up... Well, anyway, so here's what Judges 5.24 says about her. It says, Blessed above women shall Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, be. Blessed shall she be above women in the tent. Okay, so that's one. Blessed are you among women text. The other blessed are among you, uh, blessed are you among women text is in Judith, which is not in our canon, but it is in the Septuagint. It is in the uh, Catholic uh, canon of the the Bible. And Judith was also a woman who, uh, a Jewish woman who was oppressed by a foreign enemy, a Gentile enemy, and ends up sneaking into this enemy's tent and uh, killing him while he was sleeping by chopping off his head. Uh, oh, drunk. Okay. And Uzziah said to her, said to Judith, and this is from Judith 13, verse 18. Uzziah said to her, You are blessed by the Most High God, O daughter, above all other women on the earth. Blessed be the Lord God who created the heavens and the earth, who led you to sever the head of the chief of our adversaries. I love that. You are blessed by the Most High God above all women, all other women on the earth. Isn't this interesting? There is absolutely... Um, an intertextual echo here. Mary is, uh, Elizabeth is commenting to another woman, Mary, how she is like Jael and how she is like Judith. Isn't that amazing? Like, this is how subversive you are. This is how you are part of the resistance. This is how God is using you. This is how we're going to dominate um, the men of the world, right? He's going to use you to cut off a man's head. Yeah, right. So to speak. (laughs) Yes. And I think this is why... um, Studying the Bible is so interesting. It's not boring. It's like detective work trying to see like what impact would this have had on the original audience. It's, it's a t- detective mystery. You've got to put the clues together, put the pieces together, and get excited about here, God's kingdom is breaking into the world. And Elizabeth is saying to Mary, you are the center of the resistance here. You are going to be the downfall of Satan's kingdom. I think that is so powerful. 
Um, I, and there's just one more thing I want to say about Luke, and then I'll probably have to be done. It has to do with the naming of the John, naming of John the Baptist in Luke, uh, uh, Luke sixty-one to sixty-three. And I've said this before, but here at the naming of the John the Baptist, we see John and his uh, and his wife uh, Elizabeth, both of them insisting on someone's correct name and pronouns, despite cultural conventions to the contrary. There was this cultural convention that you got a name after someone in the family, and they're like, right. "Oh, no one else is named John in your family. You can't do that. You can't do that." So there's this cultural thing, and John and Elizabeth, both of them, Elizabeth too, insist on the name that was given from heaven. This internal spiritual knowledge, this internal testimony rather than what the cultural conventions prescribe. I think that is so great, um, especially in terms of our transgender siblings. I think priesthood blessings uh, could be. I'm not telling any trans people what they should do, but here's an option is a priesthood blessing may be an option for a naming ceremony for our transgender siblings to give that person the name and pronoun in our community that is theirs. And if it's, you know, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. That'd be so so that is, I love how um, John uh, literally carved, probably on a wax tablet, um, his name is John, using a pronoun and using a name that was given from heaven. So that's probably where I want to end things is like we can see throughout uh, Matthew and Luke this um, championing of the individual, championing of the marginalized, overturning the power dynamics, like God being on the side, God with us, as um, Matthew says. Uh, this, there's just so ama- much. I could talk about these for, for hours and hours and hours, but we're probably at, at way over time. <laughs> so, so I'm yeah. going to be done right here. I just want to bless everyone with a great study of the New Testament, seeing how family is constructed. Um, and how the definitions get subverted or dis- or overturned, all the power dynamics get jumbled upside down. So I'm glad you're all going to be jumbling upside down with me. <laughs> so there y'all have it. First episode back, two chapters, already over an hour. So like, thing ain't Oops. nothing changed, guys. So on that note, uh, Derek, do we have any housekeeping items, just generally speaking? No, I don't think so. Yeah, where can they find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. And also, thanks to everybody who continued to uh, support us during these last uh, six months that we haven't been on. Uh, we, we have noticed that, and we very much appreciate it. And now that we're back, we hope that we can continue to, well... You know, back, I put in scare quotes. I don't know how long that's going to be for. Like I said, keep your expectations low. But thank you, guys. Uh, We do appreciate it very much. We're going to try to do this. At least I'll say this on my end. Going to try to come back as often as we can during this very busy season for both of us. And not just busy, but also, you know, personally taxing season. I'll I'll speak for myself as I say that, um, you know, I've I've talked on our why, Why We Believe or Why We Stay episode about 
most of the time I'm in a season of, uh, or at least for most of my adult life, I've been in a season of uh, giving when it has come to my faith and when it when it has come to my activity in the church. I think at this point in my life or this season in my life, I'm gradually moving to a season where I need to take more, as in I require, I will eventually require more spiritual ministering, more than I'm able to give a spiritual ministering. Uh, I think there will still be rewards and still be capacity to, you know, minister in whatever unique ways that I can. But um, yeah, I, without going into too much detail, there's just been a lot weighing on me personally that has made uh, my quality of work and also my capacity to do the work diminished, if that mm-hmm. makes any sense. So uh, bear with me. And yeah. you know, I'm saying that for me, but bear with me as I navigate all that uh, in this new season of my life. But uh, that said, still glad to be back and would still be happy to return to this as often as possible. And Derek has been wonderful in uh, being willing to make the necessary concessions that we might be able to, you know, put these episodes out as often as possible. As you can, as you can hear in Derek's voice, I, I can certainly hear it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's an excitement there and an eagerness there that uh, I honestly, I honestly can say I echo it, but like, I'm not always going to have the energy so uh, oh, or the capacity. Well, I'll have to make um, up for that. And, and I appreciate I'm, that. Derek. I too am in a season where for my first six or seven years in the church, I I was really giving um, and I didn't really ask for much um, in terms of spiritual sustenance. And now that's that's shifting a little bit. I'm now at a time where I've got to I've got to have more more support and more ministering to me. Uh and I don't know exactly what that looks like. I've got to figure out my my relationship to navigating the church at this season. Um, but one thing that is true is I can always talk about the Bible. Like I, I, I hope it's not arrogant, but I I pr- have a pretty comprehensive knowledge of the entire New Testament. I don't. That's probably even understating it. But my God. Uh, <laughs> it is not arrogant if you back it up, and you have backed it up consistently for the last three years. It is not arrogant to say you have a comprehensive knowledge and that you know the Bible better than most saints. So well, no, at least it is New not Testament, arrogant. I mean, it is true. There's the Hebrew Bible. I mean, I don't know very systematically, but uh, but in terms of the New Testament, there's nothing there that that I haven't read many many times and and, and studied and thought about and applied. So we will see yes, how this goes. You are a New Testament um, scholar. I forget that. Yeah, I forget that. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, um, and I, the other thing is, I'm I'm very curious about how your studies uh, are. We're going to fold that in because whatever you you have learned and are learning in your coursework. I'd love to see how that folds into the uh, to what we're studying. So thanks for that. Yeah, I'm excited to uh, you know be able to share what I learn or just otherwise um, I don't know be affected by it. Like I can definitely confidently say, you know, I haven't I've learned a lot, but I've been affected by what I've learned a lot more. Does that make sense? Oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, we we can talk about that a little bit later. That is. That is a longer conversation and probably a deeper one. Um, but yeah, just wanted to share that. And uh, thank you also, Derek, for sharing uh, what's going on with you as we seek to uh, you know, continue to 
you know, do be on the block, but also continue to maintain our uh, our mental, emotional, and spiritual, and in some cases, even physical healths uh, in the midst of all this. So uh, thank you guys for your patience. Thank you guys for understanding. And uh, thank you guys for sticking with us during this uh, entire time. And also for keeping communication with us uh, during the break. Like we know that several of y'all have reached out to us, uh, you know, as a group and, you know, individually as well. Thank you guys very much for that much. Uh, We feel the love and we feel your support. And uh, also we feel, you know, the desire that you guys have to make sure that voices like ours are still included you know, in the conversation around church. Also want to say big thanks to the people who have continued to do this work, not at our behest, certainly, but certainly uh, because they've also seen the need that we see, particularly our sisters over at uh, Beyond, not Beyond, (laughs) at the Faithful Feminists, and uh, at last she said it, uh, who have continued to uh, put out content, continue to put out uh, podcasting content specifically, and uh, continue to have these necessary conversations um, that make sure the less heard voices are highlighted. So thank you guys as well. Thank Anything you. else I Is should put it? out there, Derek? I don't. I, I think so. I think I've said enough. So okay, <laughs> well, I've said note. enough now. <laughs> yeah. On that note, thank you all for joining us. Till we meet again. Okay. Till next week. Bye bye.